we had two years to plan our wedding and everything fell apart as it led up to the ceremony. The pastor ended up having a friend who got sick. The band lost one of their members. The photographer, I believe, double booked. Our flowers died. The morning of the ceremony, they uh, froze in the refrigerator. (laughs) Oh my goodness, it was just, um, it was a mess. Frozen flowers, the band, and the photographer, MIA. Sarah's destination wedding, ruined. At the time, everything seemed doomed. But the day of the wedding, her luck changed. My best friend's mother drove 45 minutes back into town and bought all the flower shops out of their hydrangeas. My grandmother is a very devout Southern Baptist. She ended up cornering a pastor and politely guilt-tripped him into performing the ceremony. So it all worked out in the end. But here's the thing about Sarah. Even before her wedding, Sarah was no stranger to bad luck. She was diagnosed with epilepsy when she was a kid. Welcome to The Push. This is a pregnancy neurology podcast. Today's episode is about epilepsy in pregnancy. So you might be asking yourself right now, what does Sarah's wedding from hell have to do with epilepsy in pregnancy? Well, I guess the theme for this episode is loads and loads of planning, and in the end, a little bit of luck. We're going to talk you through the planning stages, preconception counseling for women with epilepsy, peripartum and postpartum safety issues, and breastfeeding, and also the luck, the risks of the medications in pregnancy versus the risks of the seizures themselves. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so stay tuned. But first, back to Sarah. This is her story. When I hit middle school, it was my best friends who actually pointed it out that I would space out. Sarah eventually saw a doctor and learned that her space out episodes were in fact absence seizures. For patients with absence epilepsy, the seizures most often start in childhood. One seizure drug she tried gave Sarah bad stomach pains, so she went on lamotrigine, which goes by the trade name Lamictal. She felt pretty normal on lamotrigine, and more importantly, it controlled her seizures. In fact, when she tried to come off the lamotrigine, the seizures came back. Soon after she got married, she started to think about becoming pregnant. And this made her nervous. Would she encounter the same bad luck she had had with wedding planning? There were definitely a lot of stressors leading up to making the decision to have a baby. I was a little anxious going into it, knowing that there was a chance that just in pregnancy would increase my risk of seizures. And the other concern was the type of medication, you know, the risk of birth defects. And was I on the right type of medication? Did I need to change that? And this, folks, is the gamble. What's worse, the risk of seizures or the risk of the medications used to treat them? Now, Sarah's not alone in her anxiety because we're all taught in medical school that anti-seizure drugs, also called anti-epileptics or anticonvulsants, are associated with risks of birth defects. But of course, having a seizure in pregnancy can also be harmful. So what do you do? Can pregnancy affect the seizures? Does having a history of seizures affect the labor and delivery plan? And what about postpartum? Can you breastfeed on seizure medications? We've got loads of questions, and so it's time to call in our experts. But who are the experts who treat pregnant women with epilepsy? For this episode, we've assembled a very special team of doctor experts. I'll call them the dynamic duo. So my name is Gina Deck. I'm a neurologist who specializes in epilepsy, and I work at Rhode Island Hospital. My name is Tina Yarrington. I'm a maternal fetal medicine physician at Boston Medical Center. And there's one more thing you should know about these doctors. We're sisters. Did your parents intend to name you Gina and Tina? Yes, yes. And we have a third sister, and thankfully she does not have a rhyming name. Gina and Tina, otherwise known as Dr. Deck and Dr. Yarrington, two doctors cut from the same cloth, literally, probably sharing a lot of their DNA, 
and each one a doctor, but two very different kinds of doctor. Here's Dr. Tina Yarrington. There's quite a chasm between the self-selection for OB and the self-selection for neurology. I do not mind blood. I have to change my scrubs multiple times a shift when I'm on labor and delivery. People pee on me. People poop on me. It doesn't really matter. I love being in the middle of emergency. I love being in the middle of a crisis. And Gina is so systematic and thoughtful and detail-oriented. We could not be more different. Neurology, you often have a little bit more time to think about things. You rely on imaging. In epilepsy, we use EEG or other data to figure out what's going on. In neurology, one thing I enjoy about it is the physical exam and trying to localize the lesion. Whereas in OB, you know, there's a baby. (laughs) And the baby's not a lesion, is it? No, that's a good thing. (laughs) Is the baby growing? So it's just two totally different mindsets. But as sisters, they admit the fields really aren't that different after all. One of our goals every day is to make sure our patients, you know, understand what's going on, can advocate for themselves. We want to advocate for them and figure out a way, regardless of how healthy or how sick they are, that they can live their lives and do what they want to do. In my case, if they want to pursue pregnancy, let's figure out a good plan. In her case, if they're pregnant and they have an issue, you know, what should we do about it? So the overall philosophy is very similar, even if how we got there was very different. Sister experts, what better pair than to answer our questions today? I ran Sarah's story by both doctors in doctor language. A 29-year-old woman with absence epilepsy and breakthrough seizures off Lamotrigine presents for preconception counseling. How do you explain what a seizure is to a patient? So when I'm talking to a patient, usually I describe a seizure as basically an electrical storm in the patient's brain. And seizures can really be anything. In the case of absence seizures, the seizure starting in the whole brain at once Or if the seizure just starts in one part of the brain, their symptoms might just be, you know, from that part of the brain where the seizure is starting. So it starts in the speech area. They might not be able to talk. And then if the seizure spreads to other parts of the brain, at that point they might lose consciousness or have a convulsion, which is, I think, what patients typically envision seizures as looking like from watching TV or movies or that kind of thing. Epilepsy means a tendency to have unprovoked seizures. But what about pregnancy? What's important to discuss at that preconception visit? According to Dr. Tina Yarrington, that discussion has to happen very, very early. 50% of pregnancies in the U.S. are unplanned. So while everyone, every physician has such a long list of issues to go through, it is especially important for women with chronic diseases, including epilepsy, to have a plan for contraception. And if they don't have a plan, to be taking a prenatal vitamin because it's going to happen. And her sister agrees. Even just from the very first visit, even if they're not thinking about pregnancy, I always bring up the importance of being on some sort of birth control and letting me know which one she chooses because birth controls can interact with seizure medications, both decreasing the level of the anti-seizure medication potentially and vice versa. The anti-seizure medication could decrease the effectiveness of birth control, so we just need to communicate about what she decides to do. And we talk about the importance of folate supplementation as well, because there is some evidence that folate might be helpful in preventing some of these birth defects. The dose of folic acid is not well established, but most neurologists and OBGYNs agree on somewhere between one milligram and five milligrams per day. And what about once they start trying to get pregnant? Anti-seizure medications are associated with a slightly increased risk of uh, major congenital malformations or birth defects. So we try to choose the best option for the patient. 
We try to use the lowest dose possible, we, and we try to get baseline levels of the anti-seizure medications. So the goal would be to get a level when the patient's feeling good and seizure-free, and then we aim to maintain that level if they were to get pregnant at some point. Dr. Deck emphasized that the best drug for the patient in pregnancy is the one that keeps her seizure-free. Sarah had tried to taper lamotrigine in the past and had breakthrough seizures. I asked Dr. Deck, are some anti-seizure medications better than others in pregnancy? So I say if you have to be on a medication, I would choose something like lamictal or lamotrigine um, or Keppra or levetiracetam. Those are the two that the data shows has the, the least risk of uh, birth defects associated with it. And all of the information is based on these very large pregnancy registries where women who are on the different medications register and then we basically follow them and see what happens during pregnancy. So it's not based on a randomized control trial, but it's based on the best available data we have. Are there any bad anti-seizure medications in pregnancy? Dr. Deck says that the highest risk medications in pregnancy are Depakote or valproic acid, Topamax or Topiramate, and Phenobarbital. The risks with these drugs can vary. Now, birth defects typically occur in the first trimester of pregnancy. That's when the baby's organs are forming. But there are other risks, too. Later in pregnancy, so mostly in the third trimester, exposure to certain drugs like Depakote or Valproic Acid are associated with uh, neurocognitive issues. So those children have higher rates of like slightly lower IQ or other cognitive sequelae. So it's more than just the birth defects. It is also cognitive outcomes that we look at. So far, we've learned Sarah is on one of the anti-seizure drugs considered safest from a birth defect standpoint. There's actually no elevated risk of neurocognitive issues on lamotrigine compared to the general population. It keeps Sarah seizure-free, so it's the right choice for her. But taking a medication in pregnancy can be a hard pill to swallow for patients who usually don't want to take any pills at all. Dr. Tina Yarrington usually begins a discussion with this patient around this question. What does her patient already know about seizures in pregnancy? because patients come in with more than a few misconceptions. Even the person with the best, most attentive neurologist is also surrounded by her family, her community, and all the stuff that's available on Google. And given that, more often than not, women will have heard that they shouldn't, not just to decrease to the lowest possible dose, but that they shouldn't be on medications when they're pregnant, and that somehow an anticonvulsive equals a birth defect. Um, additionally, that a seizure wouldn't be the worst thing because it's harm to her. And in the frame of pregnancy, she thinks to herself, people commonly say, I only want what's best for the baby. It doesn't matter what happens to me. Try to parse out truth from mythology and get to a point of commonality. Because while both Gina and I can talk till we're blue in the face to a patient, unless she believes and sort of accepts what it is we're saying, it's not going to change her actual behavior. So let's tackle these two myths. First, the idea that an anticonvulsant equals a birth defect. What you have to understand is that the risk of these birth defects are very low. The safest drugs in pregnancy from a birth defect standpoint, that's lamotrigine and levetiracetam, have birth defect rates around 2 to 3%. And that's compared to 1% to 2% of the general population. A lot of what I have to do often is to take apart concerns about FDA categories of medications. They are incredibly unhelpful to women who have any kind of chronic medical condition. And just about every anticonvulsant is category C or D. And so we have to start with you know, giving internal permission to put that aside a little bit. And that second myth she mentioned, is a seizure really that bad? 
Well, it's important to tell pregnant women that as a general rule, if it's happening to the mom, it's also happening to the baby. I will reiterate and say, as an obstetric specialist, the most important advice I can give you is to stay on your medications when and if you get pregnant. And we talk about the impact of a seizure on the developing fetus. And the critical thing to that is really twofold. If the woman does have convulsive seizures with a risk of falling, that risk of trauma to the abdomen could cause a placental abruption and do harm or even end the life of the fetus. Secondly, any period of hypoxia related to a seizure, if that's involved in her pathophysiology, also translates to hypoxia of the fetus. These moments of hypoxia can be really critical and cause irreversible damage. Fortunately for most women with epilepsy, they don't have an increase in seizures compared to their pre-pregnancy baseline. But a minor seizure, like a twitch of a leg or a short staring spell, while not as dangerous to the developing fetus as a full-on convulsion, can nonetheless be a warning for patients and for their neurologists. A larger seizure might be just around the corner. So it's very important that patients report seizures and auras to their treating neurologists. And neurologists might recommend taking some steps. It might be as simple as improving sleep or increasing a medication. And that's exactly what happened to Sarah. Everything was going well on the Lamotrigine, that is, until later on in the pregnancy. The third trimester, all of a sudden, I started feeling very scattered and just really felt like I kept missing a few beats and was really chopping it up to pregnancy, not quite wanting to think that maybe I was starting to have seizures again, and then it just really started to become more and more frequent. So we had to change our dosage. A change in dosage during pregnancy for medications like lamotrigine is usually the rule rather than the exception. But like everything, Dr. Deck has a system for this. So ideally, we'd have a baseline level before she gets pregnant. And then at the very least, we check a level every trimester. And if she has any breakthrough events, we'd check a level sooner. The classic medication we think of as needing to adjust pretty aggressively during pregnancy is lamotrigine. A medication like lamotrigine, which basically is metabolized by glucuronidation, the level can drop precipitously. You know, we might even need to double the dosage of the medication by the end of the pregnancy. So I, I stress to her that we don't worry about the, the dosage. We worry about the level in her blood. And if she comes to me with any, you know, breakthrough events, even before we get the level back, because often it's a send-out test, we'll empirically increase the lamotrigine a little bit. Now, lamotrigine may be the most sensitive of the anti-seizure medications, but with most medications, you have to adjust them at least a little bit in pregnancy. Her sister, Dr. Tina Yarrington, says there are three main physiologic changes that contribute to this need for a medication increase. Number one. The first is the overall increase in mom's circulatory volume. It'll increase by about 30, 40 percent, and that peak is around 28 weeks. And it starts almost immediately, but with that increased volume comes potentially decreased circulatory levels of the medication. And number two. As early as four to six weeks after the last menstrual period, there's an increase in the glomerular filtration rate such that drugs are more rapidly cleared. So anything that's renally cleared might be affected by that. Number three. The third component is driven largely by the increase in circulatory estrogen. There's an increase in the synthesis of proteins from the liver that can bind various medications. And so if any of these medications are hepatically cleared or modulated, while the total levels may be unchanged, the free levels of these medications will decrease. And one more thing. And then an unrelated phenomenon that may be independent of these volume changes, et cetera, is the nearly ubiquitous nausea and vomiting of the first trimester. And that can be a bad player for these women. 
Dr. Yarrington likes to see these women with epilepsy much earlier in their pregnancy than usual to have a more candid conversation about these changes. And her sister, Dr. Deck, sees these changes firsthand when it comes to managing her patient's anti-seizure medications. But what about after Sarah delivers? How quickly do these factors change back? It's really important to remember that after the delivery, you have to go back down on the medication or they will become toxic. Dr. Deck recommends an empiric taper of lamotrigine back down to a dosage just over the pre-pregnancy dose within a few short weeks following delivery, mainly to counteract the effects of sleep deprivation on seizure risk. So far, we've talked about the risks of the drugs and the risks of seizures. We've talked about pharmacology and physiology, what happens to these drugs as a woman's body changes throughout pregnancy. And now for the big question, can she push? In other words, should a history of seizures in the mom affect the labor and delivery plan? No, it should not. No, I mean, besides the fact that we should have a plan in terms of what we're doing with the medication so that if something happens during the delivery, you know, they have lorazepam or another medication, you know, available, but in terms of the specifics, it shouldn't affect anything now. The fear, of course, is a seizure around the time of labor and delivery. And fortunately for women with epilepsy, this is very, very rare. And these patients having an OB who knows about the history of epilepsy is key because the differential for a peripartum seizure includes eclampsia, which is totally, totally different from epilepsy. But still, the emergency treatment of a woman who is seizing in labor and delivery is important to remember. I will say it's tricky on the OBGYN side if a patient has a seizure on labor and delivery. The first thing I say to my residents is if a woman has a seizure, the last thing you should think about is the fetus. It is not safe to do a C-section if she has just initiated a seizure, and you're not going to. You're going to stabilize the mother first. And so despite our first-line instinct to, oh, how's the baby doing? What's going on now? That can actually be put aside, and the focus needs to be to stabilize the mom, get her on her side, and try to think quickly about what the differential is. Despite preeclampsia being such a bread-and-butter disease for us as OBGYNs, the thought of the eclamptic seizure is really terrifying for everybody. While in the labor and delivery world, we think every seizure is an eclamptic seizure, if a woman enters pregnancy with epilepsy, she may well be at real risk for status epilepticus. And that's so fundamentally different from an eclamptic seizure. An eclamptic seizure is self-limited. Sarah's doctors were prepared. They knew that if Sarah had a seizure during labor and delivery, they'd have to give her IV lorazepam or a load of an IV anticonvulsant. And it's important to point out here that magnesium is typically used to prevent eclamptic seizures, but it really has no role in the treatment of epileptic seizures. And shifting gears a bit now, what about breastfeeding? Here's Dr. Yarrington. Absolutely, she can breastfeed, yes. The benefits of breastfeeding are not only the optimal possible nutrition for the baby, to also future cardiovascular benefit for the mom. Now, when it comes to taking a medication, the question is, does it cross the breast milk, and if so, how much? and based on the amount that it crosses, are there any real implications for the neonate? Now, lamotrigine is a medication that will transfer into breast milk, but at fairly low amounts, certainly subtherapeutic. So while the neonate is getting some, the best evidence would show it's certainly not enough to cause any harm. And there's some postpartum safety issues. Here's Dr. Deck. So I emphasize medication compliance because in the setting of sleep deprivation in any situation, it's easy to forget your medications. Um, I also emphasize the importance of, you know, making sure that when she's with the baby, you know, 
keeping the baby safe if she were to have a seizure. So having her significant other or family members help out with feedings, especially at night so she can get sleep. Um, the importance of supervision if she's going to be giving the child a bath, um, changing the diaper on the floor as opposed to a table that's high up, um, not sleeping with the baby in her bed. Like the vast majority of women with epilepsy, it all worked out in the end. <laughs> How old is your daughter? <laughs> she's almost two and very happy, healthy, beautiful, so we're very grateful. A lot of stressors leading up to it, but we have a wonderful beautiful little girl. Sarah's pregnancy worked out perfectly. Sarah's pregnant again, and I asked the sisters if they had any advice for her. So not to be too cheesy about it, but just like the wedding is actually not what it's important. What's important is the marriage. People get so focused on the nine months of pregnancy and doing it perfectly, and in the end, what really matters is having a healthy child in your arms. And so all the work on our part in the background and the investment of the patient, what's paying off is not a glorious pregnancy. What's paying off is the person you take care of for the rest of your life. There are two lessons here. The first, communication. Clinician to patient and clinician to clinician. Be careful not to send mixed messages. The second, preparation. Check levels, supplement folic acid, and talk with your patients early because 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. Thanks to our sister experts, Dr. Gina Deck in the Department of Neurology at Rhode Island Hospital and Dr. Tina Yarrington in the Department of Maternal Fetal Medicine at Boston Medical Center. Music is by Tom Van Buskirk, based on his baby's fetal heartbeat. Production assistance by Megan Hall and Lauren Black. Big thanks to Bob Lovinger and the Lifespan Development Office. And special thanks to Larry Warner and the Rhode Island Foundation for making this podcast possible.